0: Paul says, so I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another so that you do not or you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit Okay, now, since we've got a, a live audience here, I get to get us moving a little bit. Don't move too much, stay in your seats. But raise your hand if you've heard this word before, neuroplasticity. Okay, good, got some like neuroscientists in here. Neuroplasticity, if you are not aware of the word, relates to two things. One, neuro, neurons, brain. Two, plasticity, plastic, moldability. It, it's kind of the science, the study, that describes how habits are formed inside of our brains. So for example, maybe you remember the first time you tried to shoot a basketball or throw a baseball or a football and you had no idea what you were doing or you watched someone who doesn't know how to throw that ball, throw that ball, their brains have not created the pathways to do that activity properly yet. And yet you learned at some point in your life probably and that when you throw a baseball, you've gotta put your arm a certain way, you've gotta cock your shoulders a certain way, that your legs gotta do something specific, that your weight needs to land on some point of your feet. And you just started practicing throwing over and over again and over and over again until your brain started making these pathways where it became second nature. You know, if you try to demonstrate what it looks like to not throw a baseball, you might have a hard time doing it because something ingrained in you, it just automatically, moves your body in the right way to throw that baseball or that football or shoot that basketball the way that the pathways in your brain have been formed. We get to see this concept of neuroplasticity in action as we watch kids learn how to take their first step. If you've got children or grandkids or nieces or nephews, or you've seen babies do this on TV, right, you've probably seen this that there's this moment where a child has no idea what to do with their body and they're sitting on the floor and then they figure out how to pull themselves up. I'm not going to do the whole thing, that'll be very weird. Uh, but there's so many muscles and and balance issues involved in that whole process of learning how to stand and make the muscles of your legs stay where they need to stay to keep your balance. Learn how to take that first step. And you kind of, if you want to, if you can practice it, you can see just the way that so many things are involved in a simple ap- action that we take for granted every day, like simply walking because these neural pathways in our brains have been formed, these ruts have been created in our minds, and so these actions that at one point in your life you couldn't even do, now some of us literally can even walk in our sleep, right? We just, it's second nature. And Malcolm Gladwell says that if you practice anything for 10,000 hours, you become an expert at it. And the reason that I bring these things up is because I feel like even though we know this whole concept is true in sports, in walking, in playing the cello, many of us have practiced our faith for hours and weeks and months and years and decades of our lives and we still feel like we have no idea what we're doing. You feel like that? You feel like I've been a Christian for so long I should be better at it by now? I've been trying to do the same action. All I want to do is get up in the morning, read my Bible, and I can't do it. I practice, and I practice, and I try to practice, but I can't figure it out. All I want to do is spend a a few minutes a day in prayer. That's all I want to do, but I can't seem to do the things that I want to do desperately. No matter how much I try to practice it, Christianity never really becomes a habit. on the flip side, there are things that we desperately do not want to do because of our faith, Uh, sins that we don't want to commit, Uh, substances we don't want to abuse, things that we don't want to say, practices we want to abstain from, but no matter how much we try to get better in our faith, it feels like it never becomes a, a habit. There's something in us that's warring against our desire to do good And so we can't do the things that we wanna do no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we try, no matter how long we've been at it. We just can't seem to figure this Christian walk thing out. And Pastor Larry leads our, our prayer team and he's an example for me in character, life, prayer. And I ask him, hey, can you give me the secret? How do you learn to pray and live the way that you do? And he always says the same thing. He says, Danny, he's probably said this to you too. I'm a novice at this. And I roll my eyes. I'm like, no, you're an expert. But knowing what I know about myself, about you, about human nature, and about Larry Vold himself, I realize he's not lying. I'm sure he feels like deep inside his prayer life is not what he wants it to be. I love that passage that Buzz read at the beginning of the service about this desperation we feel because our behavior does not match what we want our behavior to look like. Paul says in Romans 7, right before the verse buzz read, that he knows that God's law is good, but he sees another law at work in himself, waging war against the members of his body and making himself a prisoner to the law of sin, waging war against his mind. He says, who will rescue me from this body of death? I love that the next line that Paul says is praise be to God through Jesus Christ. Jesus rescues us from this body of death. And yet today as we look at this passage in Galatians 5, I wanna talk a little bit about how. So I think we all know how Jesus rescued us from sin in our salvation. We know how he made us a Christian when we came to him in faith and surrendered to him. But how can the spirit of God free us From the things that bind us. And how can the spirit of God free us to do the things that God is calling us to do? That's what we're going to look at in Galatians chapter 5 today. So if you want to take notes, you are welcome to. We'll put some stuff on the screen you could write down or take a picture of. Galatians chapter 5 is our text. The first thing you could write down today. This is, we're going to start simple, right? First thing that we do start with today is our first point, which is this. Do not do what you want to do. That's your first step. If you wanna experience transformation by the power of the Spirit, do not do what you want to do. I was thinking about that. Are are there any Seinfeld fans here? I realize I'm kind of getting old now that I'm quoting Seinfeld at church, but you're laughing because you think I'm not old. So I'm thinking about Seinfeld the other day, there's an episode where George is having an existential crisis. He's on the beach, he's obviously reflecting about his life and then he comes back into the diner and Jerry and Elaine are sitting there and he says, everything in my life has not turned out the way that I've wanted it to turn out. Every decision I've made has proven itself to be wrong. Every pathway I've chosen has been the wrong pathway. And so he realizes that the secret to living well is to always do the opposite of whatever he feels compelled to do. So instead of ordering tuna on rye, he orders chicken salad on toast. Instead of not talking to the beautiful woman at the bar, he goes and talks to the beautiful woman at the bar. Instead of not telling her that, in his words, he is bald and fat and still lives with his parents, he tells her all those things, and it works out so swimmingly by just not doing the things that he naturally wants to do. Now, the reason that show is funny, and if you disagree, you're wrong, is Because there's something about the funny things in Seinfeld that are so true to life that there's a secret that we can learn in not doing what we want to do. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. We'll stop talking about Seinfeld. Instead, I'll read you this. He says, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do what you want. He says there's something in us called the flesh. You could write down flesh, the Greek word is sarx, the flesh. And in the New Testament, there's a range of meanings for the flesh, all kind of related to this idea that our human selves in some way, our natural selves, are weak. This is the concept we see in the Garden of Gethsemane in the Gospels when the disciples are charged by Jesus to pray for an hour and they keep falling asleep. And what does Jesus say? He says, The the spirit is willing, but the flesh, the sarks, is weak. This basic understanding of the flesh is the reason that you can't order a salad at a restaurant. You think, I did this the other night, look at the menu, yeah, that's what I'm going to get, I'm going to get a salad, no problem, tell my wife, I think I'm going to order the salad. Then the waiter comes, and my mind says, tell the waiter you want to order the salad. I said, I'll have a hamburger and french fries. I don't know what happened. (laughs) Augustine, in his confessions, says that the mind commands the body and it instantly obeys. The mind commands itself and it faces resistance, right? This is the flesh, there's something in us that just is weak all the time. Yet when Paul uses this term, the flesh, he kind of turns up the volume to 11 on it and says, this is the part of you in your natural self that is constantly rebelling against God and his law in your life. This is what the flesh is. is, He says the deeds of the flesh are obvious. And he lists a, a name of sins of all the things that happened in the Roman empire that people just do because they're following their own passions and lusts. The flesh, Paul would say, is what makes us sleep around and drink too much and tell people off and lie all the time and not be able to have a good self-image because we're always trying to go back and cover things up. We're consumed with all these different things because the flesh within us, this natural part of us, is just so strong and is always getting us to do the wrong thing. Three three things we need to know about the flesh. Number one, it's in all of us. Number two, it's always opposed to what God wants for us. And number three, flesh is the thing that sends ungodly people to hell. That's what Paul says. I say that because Paul says it right here. He says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right, what Paul is not saying is that if you're a Christian, if you sin, you'll go to hell, right? We know that's contrary to the gospel. If you're a Christian, you'll go to heaven because of Jesus. That's how the gospel works. And yet Paul, kind of like James in his epistle, when he talks about the power of the tongue, and he says the, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It sets things on fire, and it itself is set on fire by the fires of hell. Paul says that's true of the flesh, The flesh is that part of humanity that sends ungodly people to hell. It's that part that causes us to disobey and run from the Lord at every turn. It's in all of us. It's opposed to God's law, and it is a dangerous thing. So that's why this first learning is so important. Don't do what you want to do. Second thing, step two. Number one, don't do what you want to do. Step two, listen to the Spirit of God inside of you. that's the second character that Paul brings out in the text. He says there's the flesh and there's the spirit and both of these voices exist in you simultaneously if you're a believer in Christ all the time. This is where the dilemma starts getting a little more grave because this is difficult to do. It's difficult to live when you have simultaneous voices coming at you simultaneously, right? Like if you have children, you understand what I'm talking about. I have six children, so I understand what I'm talking about. My wife and I have never had a conversation that was fruitful around the dinner table, even though that's what happens on TV. We sit, we have this island in our kitchen, we put all our kids around the island, and every night we have this beautiful dream of a single conversation with our family. But instead of a single conversation, we have 500,000 conversations simultaneously at the dinner table. We're trying to go around and say, tell us about your day. What was the high of your day? What was the low of your day? Tell us about your day. And this person's trying to talk, but then these folks are having a side conversation. And then this person's talking about something random. And this person's humming or singing a song. This person's getting up and getting water. This person's talking to me or talking to Jessica. Mama, 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 mama. So so we're sitting there and all these voices are happening at once and we're using all of our energy to try to listen to the one person that we're trying to listen to. And it feels like, because it's true, that we have six voices in our head at the same time. This is what the Christian experiences every moment of every day with kind of like that angel and the devil kind of thing. This idea that the flesh is speaking to us and the spirit who has a still small voice in the scriptures is trying to whisper to us, do this, do this, do this. Martin Luther in his treatment on this text says that that we have two contrary captains in our minds. And both trying to grab the wheel of the ship and steer it where it wants to go. So this is that battle that you read about in Romans 7, like Buzz alluded to, this battle between our will for God and our flesh's will for our life. We're trying to wrestle our lives towards what the Spirit says. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Don't do what you want to do. Listen to the voice of the spirit inside of you. And I know that sounds hopeless and fruitless, but I do want to point out that what Paul points out and what we learn from the text is that one of those two voices that's in your head is the spirit of the living God himself. And that's a powerful thing. The word spirit, ruah, in the Old Testament is used 300 times and always describes God's active power in carrying out his will. But the spirit was present at the creation, breathing life into all things on planet earth. God breathed his breath into human beings and they came to life through the power of the spirit. The Spirit is the one who saves people in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Spirit is the man, the one who calls people to himself. The Spirit is the one who equips folks for the calling God has on them. The Spirit is the one who enables them in the work. The Spirit is all over the scriptures bringing God's awesome and mighty works to real life. And that's the voice that's whispering for your obedience in your mind. In the New Testament, the Spirit is the one who raises Jesus Christ from the dead. The Spirit is the one who comes to rest and indwell every believer in Christ who gives us the presence of God with us at all times. We learn through church history that the Spirit is one member of the Trinity that the Spirit is co-equal with Father and Son, that the Spirit is of the same substance as the Father and the Son, that the Spirit is worthy of worship, that the Spirit is very God of very God, and the Spirit is the omnipresent God being present expressively in your life as you are anointed by him, indwelt with him, and filled with him, God himself is the second voice in your head. I love how Paul puts it in Romans 8, Verses nine and verse 11, I'll turn to it. It says after Romans seven, if you get discouraged in Romans seven, you should turn a page because Romans eight is amazing. Paul says in Romans eight, nine, you however are not, are, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in in you. There's two voices, the flesh and the spirit. One is very powerful in controlling all your actions and one is the presence of the living God himself. Knowing this, it should be easier to be a Christian, shouldn't it? Doesn't it feel like if you've got two voices and one is fake and one is Jesus, one is the spirit, one is God himself? obeying him would be a lot easier than it really is in real life? Doesn't it feel like we should have more victory over our sin if the spirit of God is the one who's whispering his nudgings in our ear all day long? I don't know if the spirit is the one telling you to order a salad, but the spirit's the one who's telling you to abstain from that sin. The spirit is telling you the one to hold back on your anger. The spirit is the one who's telling you to lean into Jesus. The spirit is the one who's giving you the beautiful life-giving advice that only leads to love Yet there's something in us that just cannot do what the Spirit is constantly encouraging us, nudging us, urging us to do. And Why is that? Now, Paul brings up a third character in this story that a lot of times we don't look at, we don't realize is there. But I think it's kind of the key to understanding why we tend to not win this battle of the Spirit's uh, calling on our lives. The, the third uh, character that Paul brings out in this text is one called the law, the law. Uh, we see that the law shows up a couple of times in this passage. The law in, in the scriptures, as you've heard about the Old Testament law, the ceremonial law, the sacrificial law, the moral law of God. And in the New Testament, the law as a concept is used to talk about God's law, also to kind of talk about that idea that we are people who tend to create rules for ourselves, checklists for ourselves. We are people who try really hard to obey God's law. That's what we see in that Romans 7 passage where Paul says, the law is good, but there's another law at work within me, waging war against my mind and causing me to be a prisoner. There's a law, there's a rule, there's a plan that we try to carry out. And we can't. You now Paul brings up the law twice in this passage. Uh, first, a- after he's talking about the, the tension between the flesh and the spirit, he says in verse 18, if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law, after he talks about the fruit of the Spirit and the beauty that comes from living this life of love by following the Spirit's guidance, he says, against such things, there is no law. In Romans 7, the word law comes up a ton. La, 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 la. Why? What is the, the critical thing that Paul needs us to understand about the relationship between the flesh and the spirit by bringing in this third character of the law? I think Paul is trying to help us to see that any plan to do good is not going to work because we lack the power to do good. That a plan to do good is a great plan. Like, well, who is it? Uh, who said this? Was it Mike Tyson or Evander Holyfield? It said that every great plan goes out the window the moment somebody punches you in the face. Right. That, that's how plans work. We see that the the fruit of the Spirit is all these different types of of love. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. has talked about this idea of the, the plan and the power of the law. He says, the law can make a man not lynch me, which is good, but the law cannot make a man love me. The law is powerless to create love. I think the biggest thing that that Paul is doing by bringing out this idea of the law is not the way to conquer the flesh, the law is not the way to conquer sin, is that Paul is helping us to understand that the spirit of God does not merely give you a plan for transformation. The spirit of God gives you the power for transformation. The spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is not merely the one whispering a good plan for your life, saying, do this and you'll be fine. Don't eat that cheeseburger, right? Or don't say that thing or involve yourself in this practice. The Spirit is not just giving you a plan for your day. According to the, to the gospel and according to the Apostle Paul, the Spirit is the power that brings transformation to our lives. The Spirit's power is what we need in this thing. And so yes, step one, don't do what you want. Step two, listen to the voice of the Spirit. But step three is not then do what he says. Step three is lean into Jesus and let the Spirit of God do his work in you. That's step three. Don't do what you want. Listen to the still, small voice of the Spirit and then lean into Jesus and let the Spirit and his power transform you from the inside. Paul labors to to bring out this tension in this text and in the Romans texts. Right here, you can see as you look at this, he talks about the works of the flesh being obvious, but then he doesn't say the works of the spirit are love, joy. He says the fruits of the spirit, trying to draw out the distinction that the flesh is what you do in obedience to your own desires, but what the spirit can produce in your life is beautiful as you surrender to him and to his power and to his plan. The spirit does the work. It's not about you working. This reminds you of something. The thing it reminds you of is the gospel itself. The gospel when you became a Christian, you came to the Lord and said, God, my plans aren't working. My plans to save myself, they're not working. My plans to conquer sin myself are not working. My plans for my life are not working. Nothing I'm doing is working, God. And so God, I'm going to bring it all to you. I'm going to put it at the feet of Jesus. I need a new life. I need your transformation. I need a new spirit. I need your spirit. I need you to change me from the inside out. Because in my own power, I can't do this thing called life, called eternity. I think sometimes we forget that the gospel of Jesus is not merely the entry point to Christianity. The gospel of Jesus is the entirety of Christianity. That us coming to the Spirit in a posture of surrender and saying, God, I can't do this. I need you to do this. I hear your whisper in my ear. I can't do it, God. I need you to do it in me. That's the secret of transformation, is letting the Spirit do His work in you as you submit yourself to His rule, to His plan, to His presence. So don't do what you want. Listen to that voice of the spirit as he whispers inside of you, do this instead or don't do that. And then lean into Jesus and let the spirit transform you from the inside out. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis that I love that I wrote down for us. you kind of describe the process of transformation. C.S. Lewis says, we may indeed be sure that perfect chastity will not be attained by merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. And he says this, even when you've done so, it may seem to you that for a long time no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up and try again. Very often what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but just this power of always trying again. What Lewis draws out is that following the Spirit's guidance in our lives is actually a neuroplastic event. We can get in this place where we're submitting our lives to him, and he starts to change us. Paul started this, this passage by saying, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walking by the spirit or keeping in step with the spirit is this image in the scriptures of the spirit going before you and you walking behind him in his footsteps. Like Jesus saying, come and follow me. Walking after him day after day, picking yourself up, doing it again, walking after the spirit. The beautiful thing about walking after the spirit is that it does form a little bit of a habit or as you do the same road day after day after day and you pick up your Bible or you confess your sin or you believe the gospel again and again and again, it starts to grow this furrow in our lives like a dirt plot that's being prepared for planting. And as we do that, we're planting these seeds of obedience, these seeds of the gospel, the seeds of confession, the seeds of forgiveness. And from those seeds that we are planting in the Spirit's pathway, the fruit of the Spirit will grow. And lives of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control will become the fruit of walking with the Spirit of God. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna respond in song. If you're in here with us, you're welcome to stand after I pray and we we will worship the Lord together. Let's pray. Father, I pray for anyone today who is far from you. Maybe they've been trying to live their whole life by human effort. They don't have the spirit of God and dwelling in them as a Christian does. We pray that in this moment, they would come to the feet of Jesus, confess their sin, turn from their ways and turn to him. And then in that moment of being prepared to live differently, they'll realize that instead they'll receive the spirit of God. They'll receive forgiveness from God. They'll receive through the gospel, the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that will enable them to stand up from that place and trust, like Luther says, in the finished work of Christ for the conquering of sin. And then every time an inkling of sin comes their way, they'll nail it to the cross, nail it to the cross, nail it to the cross. As we've been crucified with Christ. I pray for anyone who's struggling with sin They would come to Jesus even in this moment. They'd find forgiveness and and newness of life. Romans 8.1 says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For by the Spirit we are set free from the law of sin and death. I pray for anyone who's struggling to do good. That they would listen to the Spirit's voice and they would trust in the Spirit's power for the transformation they need. That they develop a relationship with the Spirit of the living God. Maybe even today through prayer and that you would start to change them from the inside out as they trust you with every aspect of their lives. Let us walk in the routine of the gospel day by day. Let us not forsake the gathering because this is the place where we walk through the gospel week by week. Let us not forsake our quiet times with you daily because that is the place that we rehearse the gospel in our lives over and over, confessing our sins, receiving forgiveness, and being empowered to live for Christ. We pray that we would look back on our lives and see the fruit that you are growing as we surrender ourselves to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's respond in song.